Well, it was in 2008 that I took a group in my youth group to uh, Galveston, Texas. And Hurricane Ike had just gone through Galveston a couple of months before. And it basically destroyed so much of the island. Matter of fact, we were at, we were at the Boulevard uh, Island or Boulevard Peninsula, something like that, out there. And we were working on a house called uh, the Sunshine House. And if you've ever gone into a house after a flood and a hurricane, uh, you realize that it's kind of bad. I've taken uh, uh, Ashley to it, and Dixie came, and, and, and we did that over in New Orleans. And, and if you look in there, they call it demucking a house, because on the ground is a bunch of muck, just dirt and mud, and everything that in a flood that comes up, it spills over and goes all over the house. And so what we had to do is we, we went and we got shovels and we put it in, into the muck and we put it in wheelbarrows and we took it all out to the front. And one of the worst places that you can demuck a house is in the kitchen. In the kitchen is where all the food goes. And after uh, in Texas, it gets, it's still hot even in the, even in the fall and, and it starts getting pretty bad. And I was in the kitchen and I looked and the muck on the floor was actually very pretty. It was this silvery gray because I guess in Galveston, the nice beaches of Galveston have a little bit of oil in them too. I don't know. And so it has this iridescent uh, 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 radiance throughout the muck on the floor. The problem was it smelled worse than anything I've ever smelled in my life. But as a minister, I'm always thinking of good object lessons. And I see this beautiful muck and this horrible smell, and I thought, I need to jar that and use it sometime for a youth group class or whatever. And so I found a little mason jar that would have been thrown away anyway, and I picked it up. It was a little bitty, nice little jelly jar. And I filled it with this beautiful muck. And then when I would take it, anytime I talked about sin and, and, and something that would be abhorrent to, to us, uh, I would crack it open in the class and the kids would say, Ugh, that stinks. I didn't even have to open the whole thing. Somehow my jar of muck disappeared. And Mary's not here. She's in Bible hour right now. I think she got rid of my jar of muck. Oh well. Sometimes there are things that look beautiful on the outside, but you open up that jar and it really stinks. And that is what Jesus is going to be talking about today. Talking about how things can look to the world as something great, something beautiful, but when you really look at the heart, it stinks. And Jesus last week was talking about how we were using our worldly resources, our worldly uh, possessions, all the talents that God's given us, and we were wasting them. And these religious people heard Jesus talking and they didn't like what he was saying. They didn't think that he had a right to tell them what they should do with their worldly resources, with their money, with their talents. How dare he? So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 
14 it says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. When, say, when, he, when Jesus is speaking, the religious people at the time, the Pharisees, are sneering at Jesus. And y'all all say sneer. Sneer. <laughs> when you sneer, it kind of makes you, you can't say sneer without, well I guess you can, but you should kind of turn your nose up. And realistically, what is happening here, the, the, the true definition of what the, they were doing is that they were showing a physical sneer to Jesus. And so it, if you translate it directly, it would say they were wrinkling their nose at what Jesus was saying. So Jesus said uh, how, they were, how they were wasting their resources and they just did something like that. And I love this story because uh, if, you, if you look at what is said, Jesus is very quick-witted. Because what He responds to them as they wrinkled their nose at Jesus, as they turned up their nose at Jesus, Jesus is saying what the world values, the way you're living your life, God thinks that stinks. He says, he says, what people value highly is detestable to God in God's sight. What he's saying here is it's abhorrent to God in God's sight. What the actual means is it is, if you looked at the definition, it was offensive to God's nostrils. So as they wrinkle their nose at what Jesus is saying, Jesus says, you think you're living smelling like roses, but you stink. The way you're living your life stinks. In God's sight. It's offensive to His nostrils. And why is it that? Why are, why are the religious people of the time offending God? It's because they're taking God's law. And maybe in a lot of ways they're following God's law. But their hearts are never changing. They're finding all sorts of loopholes in God's law. Their hearts never change. And they are only living for self. And so, he goes and he tells them in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop of the law. What he's trying to tell them is, from the time Moses took the Ten Commandments down to the people, they have had the law. And the law still stands. We still are not supposed to murder. We're still not supposed to lie. We're still not supposed to commit adultery. All these commands that God's given us, these are things that we still need to stick with. But at the time of John, there is a new law that's coming into place in the kingdom of God. And it is a law that involves grace. Grace that realizes that no one can be perfect, no one can keep the law, and so grace covers us and Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. That's why John says, here is the Lamb of God. This is the sacrifice that's going to pay the penalty of our sins. 
the new law is about our heart, where our heart is. And so it's not that we can just say, well, no one's perfect, so I guess I should just keep on sinning. That's not what it is. It's saying even though I do sometimes sin, I want to do better and I want to change my ways. And that's why the John is telling this new way of repenting of your sins, turning from the way you're living your life and turning back towards God. This is the new law. But the Pharisees were abusing the law. They were abusing it for their own purposes. They were using it in a way that was disgusting to God. Matter of fact, Jesus uh, talks in, in verse 18. It's, he says something that seems like it's a little out of place here. He's been talking about worldly wealth and how we're using that. And now he brings up something that seems out of topic. And he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's he talking about here? Why is he bringing up divorce and remarriage? Well, the issue is that these godly people would look at parts of the law and they would abuse it for their own self-service. They would look at things like in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, he is, if he is, because he has found some indecency with her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, they think they have the right to do that. No problems made as long as they can say, yes, this woman committed some sort of indecency. And they would adjust the indecency to whatever they felt. So if they said she wasn't a good cook, well, she, wasn't, she was indecent and I can, I can leave her and, and I can still be okay in God's sight. Or if he finds another woman and says, well, she no longer fits my needs and so I can go find another woman and be with her and that's the indecency and that's not what God was ever talking about in the law. Matter of fact, the problem was all the woman in there and, God, and Jesus is saying no. If you marry another woman, if you, if you leave your wife, that's adultery. We do understand there's times when divorce could be necessary, but these weren't it. And they were adjusting their lives or adjusting the law to fit their lives. And Jesus looks at them and God sees what they're doing and twisting God's law. And He says, that offends the nostrils. And so He wants us to see what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be living a life that's holy and pleasing to God. What is God like? I love how Jaime just talked about this to the kids. What would happen is, is people would make sacrifices to God. And, and God must love barbecue. And that, that's why I love barbecue too, because God does. And He would smell this fragrant aroma. But even more so, what does God love? 
He loves when we live a life of sacrifice. That's why it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. What God wants is us to offer a living sacrifice. The Lamb of God was the last sacrifice that needed to be on the altar. That's Jesus Christ. And now we live a life alive in Him, making a pleasing aroma through our daily sacrifice. And so these religious people were twisting the law and Jesus wanted them to see what that looked like to twist the law up. To not live a life that was a pleasing aroma to God. So He starts this parable. And in this parable, He says in verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores and longing to eat what fell fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. I like how the English Standard Version of this says, this rich man feasted sumptuously every day. In this parable, you have this huge contrast, this huge divide. There's a rich man that denies himself nothing. Every day he's living in luxury. Every day he's feasting on whatever he wants. There's nothing denied in his life. And then the contrast is this poor man. And it's not just a regular poor man. It's a poor man that's sickly and hungry. And he just longs to eat what falls from the table. These two totally different worlds are coming in contact with each other. And are we going to allow it to collide or keep them divided? Because even nature, how Jesus describes it, that the dogs would come and lick His sores, even nature realizes we need to do something about what's right on your doorstep. Then it says in verse 22, a time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man was also, also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. As he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side, he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his, the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. And so this story has a little bit of a turn. Both of them die, but Lazarus is carried by the angels up to Abraham to live in the promise. That's where Abraham represents. He's the promise of God. And then the rich man is taken to Hades where he's in torment. And so what is this parable about? Is it saying that if you're rich, you're going to go to hell or go to Hades? Or, and if you're poor, you're going to go to paradise or go to heaven? It's an interesting thought. Because if that's the case, we probably should be thinking, alright, well how much 
do we have to have before we become rich? Or how little do we have to have before we become poor? Because if that's the only difference that rich people go to heaven or go to hell and poor people go to heaven, we probably ought to adjust how much we have in life. The problem with this is who's up there with Lazarus in paradise? Who is Lazarus standing beside? He's standing beside Father Abraham. If you know anything about Abraham, he's probably the second richest person in all of the Old Testament of the Bible next to King Solomon. There's probably, in today's uh, terms, he would be easily a billionaire. And this billionaire, Abraham, this incredibly rich man, is up in heaven. So if we look at that, it tells us this isn't a story about rich and poor, but a story about two worlds coming in contact with one another on earth. And the repercussions of what happens when we deny the Lazarus at our doorstep. It says in verse 25, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, but while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us is a great chasm. A great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot and those nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He says, remember in your lifetime you were given these great gifts. These great gifts to do what with? Use for yourself or use for God's glory? In your lifetime, these two worlds which you could try to divide are going to come together. And I love the idea of what our God does with the church. Where God brings worlds together in situations like the rich and the poor. When I was in college, I was a custodian. I guess I wasn't, uh, I was a, actually a substitute custodian. I would go to all sorts of different banks in the in College Station and Bryan. And I would uh, clean up the bank. And what was interesting is, one day I was at Compass Bank, and at Compass Bank, the bank president was a gentleman that went to church with us. Matter of fact, Mary and I would sit behind him and his family on most Sundays. And when the bank president saw me at the bank, emptying his trash, because he was working late, it was just the two of us there, he didn't think of the gap between our income. I was making five fifty an hour. Pretty good, right? I'm sure he was making a little bit more than that. 
We didn't talk about our jobs, but what did he talk to me about? He talked about how, hey, I know the Aggies for Christ are, are, are having Bible studies and I'm having one at my house. Why don't you come over to this? You should come over to dinner with, with, with us. He talked to me where our world was together. It wasn't these two separate things. Why? Because we were part of the church. And what mattered was eternal things and how we can glorify God on this earth. Our paychecks didn't matter. Our God is what mattered. And it's not just about money. It's about what two different things. You if, you, if you were in here as church got started, you heard some little girl start squealing when she saw some old man come in here. What does the church look like? This pure excitement as these two worlds that could be far apart come together. That's what God wants. And yet, the rich man chose not to do that. He chose to ignore Lazarus at his doorstep. And so Lazarus now is, or the rich man now is, regretting his decisions. And he says, can you at least send Lazarus to come and, and, and cool my tongue? And what Father Abraham says is, I can't do it. There's a chasm between us. And what this parable tells us is we've been given a lifetime. A lifetime to do good with what God's given us. Our resources, our talents, the people that we encounter, we've been given a lifetime to do good, to reach out to those Lazaruses on our front porch. And if you don't do it in your lifetime, there's no more chance in the future. And this is a scary parable. Because Jesus is wanting these godly people to realize they need to do something in their lifetime with the Lazarus that's on their front porch. And so, this Lazarus is a representation of the worlds that are colliding. It's a representation of the opportunities that we have to serve our God. The opportunities that we have to serve as church, the opportunities we have to, to, to mend broken relationships in our family, with our friends, with other church members. Opportunities to tell the good news to our neighbor. Opportunities to be more involved in His church. Opportunities to rid yourself of sinful behavior. Opportunities to give your resources to the poor and give your resources to the church. Opportunities to change your heart towards God. Every man and woman is given some sort of Lazarus at their doorstep. It's a test case as to whether we're going to use what God's given us, our possessions, our talents, our gifts, rightly or wrongly. With love or with self-indulgence. Are we going to bring God's will into the matter? when we make decisions on where we're going to spend our time, where we're going to spend our energy, where we're going to spend our resources. And ultimately, 
will we bring eternity into the equation when we make decisions on how we're going to live for Him? It says in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And a man that is now living in regret realizes that he spent all of his, all of his world on himself and none on the Lazaruses that came to his doorstep. He's saying, well, make sure my brothers don't do the same thing. And what Abraham tells him is, It's not about who I'm going to send. Moses and the prophets, the law have told you how you should live your life. The law should, should be in a way that we realize that the law should change our hearts. And the same thing happens here. I can't sit up here and give you the best sermon in the world and change your heart if you're not ready for your heart to change. We can't bring anyone in here that will give an incredible new law that will show you, well, this is how you do it, that will change your heart. You have to have your heart ready to change. That's what Abraham says. He's already had Moses and the prophets. They've already told you how you live. And you know how you need to be living your life. I know how I need to be living my life. And I know the name of the Lazarus sitting on my front doorstep. The sin that I need to shake off. The people I need to reach out to. I know this. But is my heart ready to change? And listen to Him. And then, He tells Abraham, No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead comes to them, they will repent. He said, Abraham says to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And this is the story that we get here is Jesus actually is going to rise from the dead. He's going to go to the cross. As Jesus is saying all this, He is on His way to the cross. And He knows what His fate's going to be. And He knows that He's going to rise from the dead. But even Jesus rising from the dead is not going to change your heart if you don't want your heart to be changed. And so this is the question we have today. Are we ready to change our heart? Are we ready to live for Him? We know what we're supposed to do. We know the name of that Lazarus on our doorstep. We know this. But are we ready to do it? Are we ready to follow what God's will is in our life? And are we ready to be a pleasing aroma for Him? The first step that you need to take is make Him the Lord of your life is to be baptized into Him. Have your sins washed away so that you can rise from from that watery grave and Be with Him forever. Or, most of us have probably done that. And now we just need to open that door and reach out to that Lazarus that's in our life and change our heart 
so that we can have a life that's, an, that's a pleasing aroma to our God. If you have any need, please come while we stand and sing.